Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcast. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I welcome back to the podcast Dr. Rachel Niederer to discuss eye trauma. Rachel is a graduate from the Auckland University Medical School. She's a senior medical ophthalmologist at Green Lane Hospital, and she is the Ransco College representative for the Auckland ophthalmology trainees. She is a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland in the Department of Ophthalmology. She is involved as an investigator for the Zoster Eye Disease Study and has a particular interest in uveitis and epidemiology of eye disease. Rachel is committed to decreasing inequalities within the community and the provision of eye care. Kia ora, Rachel, and welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, thank you, Louise. So today we're discussing eye trauma. I wonder if we can start with the question, how common is eye trauma? So it's really common, and there's obviously a huge range of eye trauma, so from the very mild disease to severe and you know vision-threatening disease. There was a recent study done using New Zealand data, and so they looked at ACC claims for eye trauma, and found that 1% of the New Zealand adult population will have an eye injury every year, and 0.7% of the kids, so really frequent. And if you look at those injuries, half of them are occurring within the home, about 30% are at work, and rural males aged around 20 to 29 are the highest at-risk group. So when someone presents acutely with eye trauma, Rachel, what are the questions that we need to ask? So I always like to screen for any life-threatening injuries first when someone comes in with trauma. So I consider what their GCS status is and look at whether they feel confused, whether there's any possibility of head trauma or neck trauma, and if it's a chemical injury, whether there's any inhalational injuries. If there's a chemical burn, I actually just jump straight to irrigation and I ask questions later. So um, I can always come back to doing the history. After that, it's really important to understand the mechanism of injury. So I want to know whether there's any risk of intraocular foreign bodies. So do they have any high-risk activities like hammering metal on metal? Were they wearing eye protection? And I want to ask about the symptoms. So they can give a clue to the area of the eye that's involved. So if they've got sharp, scratchy pain, it's often, you know, corneal disease or maybe, you know, conjunctival disease. If they have floaters, you know, that they're noticing new onset, it may show that you've got a bleed at the back of the eye you know, or that you've got a retinal tear for those patients. So we're going to move on to examining our patient. What sorts of things do we need to include in the examination? So it's really good to be prepared for these because these patients are in pain, they're quite uncomfortable. So I'd normally gather up an eye chart, I'd want a pen torch, I'd want some fluorescein. If you have a slit lamp, that's really great. But if not, you can see a lot with careful observation for them. And then I want to record vision in both eyes as it's a really important clinical sign that can tell us a lot. If the vision is down, then I'll try a pinhole because people won't have always brought their glasses, you know, at last minute. And if you don't have a pinhole within your clinic, you can make one, just poke a a hole through a bit of paper with a biro and get the patient to look through that. If the patient can't see the top line in the chart, just remember that you can still record a vision in the Um, whoever you're talking to in eyes is going to want to know that so if they can't see the top line I'd check whether they can count fingers Um, then I'd check if they can see hand movements and then if they still can't see hand movements I'd check whether they have perception of light so shining a bright light in the eye and seeing if they can see that 
And then when we're looking, I have a really anatomical approach to make sure I don't miss anything. So I'm starting with the lids and then working my way back. So looking at the conjunctiva, looking at the cornea, checking within the anterior chamber of the eye between the cornea and the iris to see if there's any bleeding there. I look at the iris and the pupil um, stained with fluorescein and if I need to see the back of the eye, I'll have a look at that as well or just check the red reflex for it. So we're going to discuss a number of cases now to highlight a number of the common presentations. So the first one is a 50-year-old working male. He's been working with a grinder in a shed at home and he comes in complaining of eye pain. We're concerned about a foreign body. So tell us about your approach to this case. So these patients are often in quite a bit of pain and it can make the examination really hard. So I have a low threshold for adding some topical anesthetic just to make them more comfortable. And it makes the examination a lot easier for me because they're not squinting and moving away from me and really sore with the light shining on the eye. What I do is after I've recorded the vision, I check the cornea really carefully with a bright light looking for that foreign body. I also like to check under the lids. And so the lower lid is really easy, but for the upper lid, I just use a little cotton bud at the border of the tarsal plate. So roughly where that lid creases. And then I get them to look down and I pull just a little bit down and out on the lids to turn the lids inside out and look under there. Sometimes a little foreign body will hide there and scratch away at their eye. And then if I do find a foreign body within the cornea, I try to remove it. So lots of the topical anesthetic. Sometimes you can just swipe the thing out with a cotton bud. If I'm seeing them at the eye clinic, then I use a little fine needle with them at the slit lamp. And Whenever I'm doing that, I make sure they're very hard against the the chin rest and also the forehead rest so that the only direction they can move is away from my needle and not towards it. The other thing we need to think about when you have that foreign body history is, is there any chance of an intraocular foreign body? And so really think about the mechanism of injury. Think about the velocity of the projectile that was coming. Think about whether they were wearing safety glasses. And if you're just not sure, then ordering facial x-rays in two different directions of gaze is a really useful adjunct. Otherwise, they can hide behind the eyes somewhere and slowly, particularly if they're iron, they can slowly cause damage to the eye, you know, building up pressure, damaging the retina and be found later. Our next case is also of a male, a 48-year-old male plumber who has a presumed penetrating injury. He was trying to remove a nut off a piece of pipe and he's presented with severe right eye pain and decreased vision. A suspected penetrating injury, this is an ocular emergency. Patients can often be really distressed uh, with this. You need to record the vision and you need to look with a good bright light, but it's super important not to put any pressure on the globe. So you don't want to be prying eyelids open and pressing on there too much with them. When you look at them, you may see a peaked pupil, so an abnormal pupil shape where it's pulled in one direction. It's not that nice circular appearance. And you may see something black protruding from the cornea. And almost no matter what your eye color is, when the iris comes out of the wound, it tends to look quite black. It's like you're seeing the underlayer of the iris when it comes out. And there may be blood within the anterior chamber for these patients, and the vision can be really, really poor. So if I'm suspecting that this could be a penetrating injury, the thing I want to do is protect the globe. And so I'll use either a hard shield or a plastic or a paper cup put over the eye 
and tape that over so that they're not dabbing at it and at risk of putting pressure on the eye itself. If the patient is feeling sick, I have a very low threshold for giving them antiemetics because we really don't want them vomiting with an open globe. And then sending them through to the eye clinic. The things that are really helpful for us is if you know when their last tetanus injection was, if you could send that documentation in. And if you know when they last ate or drank, then that's really helpful as well. I think it's important when you're telling the patient to go through to the eye clinic to just make sure they're aware not to eat or drink. We have some patients who, even though we tell them this is an emergency, they go via McDonald's on the way to the eye clinic and it just slows the treatment down you know, and delays their care. And so just being really clear with the instructions for them so they know what to expect. Our next case is of a 32-year-old man. He's presenting following a chemical splash injury to the right eye. This happened at work. He has decreased vision in the right eye to 6 over 12, and his left vision is intact. How quickly do we need to act with this chap? So chemical burns are another ocular emergency, and acting quickly is really vital. So in this case, the instant I know it's a chemical burn, I forgo the rest of the history, and I forgo the rest of the examination, and I just irrigate straight away. I look for any breathing difficulties if they've had any inhalational problem with that as well. And irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. If there was particulate matter, um, so sometimes the worst one that we tend to get is people who get drain cleaner splashed up, you know, into their eye and, the, and they've got some crystals with that, then it's a really good idea to do a sweep of the fortices. So just under the lids with a cotton bud as well, just to remove any of that stuff, you know, as well in case it's just sticking there. Once the eye is irrigated, you can go back to the start. So you can take a proper history, you can perform your examination. Alkali tends to be worse than acid because alkali will just keep eating through the eye. So we really want to know what what type of chemical it was. And then when you're examining them, we record the vision. We look, and again, topical anesthetic can be very useful here. We look for any epithelial defects over the cornea. And then the other thing we want to look for is any suspicious white areas. So if you've got a very red eye and then you've got a patch that's really blanched and white within the conjunctiva, that can be an area of ischemia. And when you have that, you know, the vessels are blocked off due to the bad chemical burn, that can really impact on healing. And it means we need to give them much more intensive treatment if we see it. I think if it's just something simple and if there's no abrasion, you can probably manage it yourself. But any doubts are again through to the eye clinic. I wonder if I can just clarify on the irrigation. So you've said irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. Yeah. So we're irrigating with water or normal saline? Yep. Either is going to be fine. Yeah. Whatever you have at hand is good. Okay. And volumes, what are we talking about? A couple of litres often is, is what we're using. Some people do pH testing, but I've had a lot of problems with that myself. And you know, within the eye clinic, we've stopped using the pH testing as much. We've got them on hand if we need to use them. But I find that we were getting old pH strips and people were saying, oh, the pH is still abnormal. And I'd test them on my own eye and I'd say, well, then clearly I'm sick too, because, you know, the pH is recording as abnormal for me. So I think an extensive irrigation is useful, but If the pH is only very, very mildly off, it may not be a problem. You've got to know whether your pH strips are working well. And I just tend to go for just straight volume. Wonderful. Thank you for clarifying. 
So our 17-year-old male has come in now. He's had blunt trauma to the eye. Initially, he had foggy vision, and later he's had an improvement in his visual acuity, but is still down at six over nine on his right-hand side. Do we need to worry about this gentleman? So there are lots of different problems that blunt trauma can cause, and we see a lot of it in the eye clinic. The classic exciting one for New Year's is a combination of, you know, we get uh, champagne corks in the eye on the glamorous end, and we get punches to the eye on the less so glamorous end. Bungee cord injuries when people are packing up to go away for their summer holiday um, can give a really nasty injury. And sometimes, you know, sports can give blunt injuries, you know, a ball can hit the eye, things like that. So the problems we tend to get with it, you can get a hyphema, which is a bleed from the small blood vessels in the iris. You can also get bleeding at the back of the eye. Uh, You can get bruising at the back of the eye, which is called commotio retinae. And in severe cases, you can get retinal tears or you can even get a globe rupture, you know, with bad blunt trauma. With this history, it really makes me think about hyphema. So I would look for that line of red inside the eye, just in front of the iris. And so it's obscuring the iris details there. When the iris vessels bleed, you know, if you've been hit hard enough to make the blood vessels in your iris bleed, it's a sign that you've had significant eye trauma. So all of those patients with a bleed at the front of the eye need to be seen by an ophthalmologist. Sometimes pressure in the eye can increase because the blood will clog the drainage pathways for pressure from the eye. And there's also a risk of re-bleeding as the clot clears. And the number one time that that occurs is day five to seven. And so it's usually by the time they think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm home free and everything is fine. And so, and that re-bleed can sometimes be worse than the original bleed. And so we recommend these patients have bed rest for around 10 days just to decrease that risk of bleeding again and the problems that happen with that. The other thing we do for our patients with hyphema is we give them a dilating drop and that's kind of like a splint to the iris. You can't put a, um, you know, a cast on the iris to stop it from moving, but if you dilate it enough, then you can just stop that movement to help that blood vessel to heal, and a little bit of steroid drops to control the inflammation for them. Our last case is of a 15-year-old female. She presents with right eye pain. She had difficulty removing her contact lens after she accidentally left them in overnight. We're wondering about a corneal abrasion. So what is our management of this young woman? So topical anesthetic is really useful here so that the patient is more comfortable and we can get a better examination. I think the thing to remember, though, when you do use topical anaesthetic for any of these examinations is to tell the patient this is going to give you 30 minutes of relief. After that 30 minutes is up, it's going to go back to being sore. It doesn't mean something has suddenly gone wrong. It's, you know, it's just a return of that original pain. You want to check whether the lens is present and either remove it yourself or get her to remove it if it still is there. And then I'm going to want to stain with fluorescein to check for a corneal abrasion. A corneal abrasion is going to be transparent or mildly grey to the naked eye, and then it's going to shine up really nicely with the fluorescein. On the other hand, if you have a corneal ulcer, so an infection, you know, like an infected abrasion from a contact lens wear, then usually to the naked eye, that's going to look a white or dense grey colour, and you're not going to be able to see the iris details through that. So if you're getting that kind of dense change, that's not an abrasion, that's actually an infection. It will still shine up nicely with the fluorescein, but any infections need to be referred through to the eye clinic. 
if it is just an abrasion, then best thing to do is to treat it with some chlorine phenicol. And really what I do for that depends on whether the patient needs to be able to see well out of that eye. So if they can tolerate a bit of blur, then I find that the ointment is kind of really lubricating and feels quite nice in the eye for them. But if they're going to be very frustrated by blurred vision, if they're going to be driving, if they're going to be doing all sorts of things, then the drops can be a better option. You can double pad them just for comfort, but it doesn't change the healing at all. So it's is it is the kind of thing you do purely if the patient really would like it covered, but it won't change the outcome. And then I'd tell them that things should be mostly better within a couple of days. If things are not improving or if things are getting worse, then we want to see them and make sure that there's nothing else happening there. I wonder if we can touch now on patients who present later and sometimes much later post-trauma. So the first one was discussing retinal detachment. What would somebody complain of and how are these people managed? So any trauma that you get can increase the risk of retinal detachment and more severe trauma carries a higher risk. What the patients noticed is a sudden increase in floaters and some bright flashes of light, almost like someone swinging a torch around, you know, arcing in the periphery of their vision. The floaters are caused either by opacities in the jelly, you know, of the eye and the vitreous or by blood from a retinal tear. And so you can get a shower of those all at once. The flashes are interesting. They're how the brain is interpreting traction on the retina. So the retina doesn't have any touch receptors. And so if you pull on it, it will see it as a bright flash of light. And so if there's a tug on it for whatever reason, then, then that's what the patient is seeing. And then those symptoms can then, they're what you get often with a retinal tear. They can then progress to a black curtain over part of the vision that the patient is unable to see through. And that's usually a sign of a retinal detachment and requires urgent review. Really, what we want to do for these patients is we want to catch the retinal tears early because if we see them in the early stage and we laser around them, you can stop that progressing to a detachment. So any patient who's had trauma, I think we need to have that high index of suspicion if they do come in with new floaters and see them fairly quickly within a day or two to make sure that things are doing fine. Thinking then about another complication, so sympathetic ophthalmitis. So tell us about this condition. I haven't heard of this prior to this podcast. I mean, this is a really interesting condition. It's, it's fortunate that it's really rare, but it's a very serious condition. It can affect the patient's good eye. So the eye is normally sequestered, you know, apart from the immune system by the blood retinal barrier. And when you have trauma, it can expose eye antigens to the immune system. The immune system can then be primed against the eye and it can start attacking your good eye. And so what the patients will notice is they develop red eye, they develop photophobia, they might get some blur and they might get some floaters in the good eye. And so we say that the good eye is sympathizing with the bad eye <laughs> effectively. And this can occur as early as two weeks after trauma, but it can occur even 20 years down the track. So it can occur many, many years after the original trauma. And it's not just normal, you know, accidental trauma that can cause it. So the other type of trauma that can cause it is eye surgery, you know, iatrogenic trauma. And so it's also something to think about if someone's had multiple surgeries, you know, or difficult surgeries. But for example, if they've had lots of retinal detachment repairs, you know, in one eye, usually 
the damaged eye is blind or has very, very poor vision in these cases. And I guess it's just, you know, for people who are managing patients like this, take any red eye or photophobia in the good eye really, really seriously and have a very low threshold for telling them to come in. So if you could just, for our listeners, give us our take-home messages, please. So trauma to the eye is really common, and it's likely that you're going to see some of this within your practice. I think taking a really good history, like with all of medicine, is really important, and remembering to check the vision properly, because the eye doctor is going to thank you for it. In a chemical burn, it's irrigate first and ask questions later. And in patients with severe trauma, complications can present many, many years later. So watch out for new floaters and flashes and be very careful about red eye in the good eye if there's been severe trauma for a patient. Thanks for joining us today, Rachel. It's been lovely talking to you again. Thanks so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. If you're a New Zealand GP, you can claim CPD points for listening to this podcast. Please log them. On our website, goodfellowunit.org, you'll also find a list of resources used in this podcast. You can also access webinars, med cases, and learning modules. Thank you for listening.